It was a very different time. We all in the news business understand our responsibility. There are a few irresponsible news people around. Uh, this is part of the training of a good journalist. Uh, each word is weighed for its impact, uh, for its uh, honesty, for its integrity. We must be simply reporters of what is going on to the best of our ability and truthfully. And then the people must make the decision as to what is right and what is wrong. If you're a person of a certain age, that voice should sound familiar. It's Walter Cronkite, the dean of network TV newscasters from the 1960s through the early 1980s. He and his generation of journalists served up news in a far different fashion than today. Coming up on the off-ramp, we'll dip back in time to a reporter's remarkable 1966 interview and hear how news used to be prepared with an interview with Walter Cronkite, here on the off-ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp with Bob Smith, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Today we have a remarkable interview by a man I once worked for named Don Mitchell. One October day in 1966, Don caught up with one of the busiest men in the world, a globetrotter named Walter Cronkite, who anchored what was then the most watched news program in America the CBS Evening News. Now, younger generations may tire of their elders bemoaning how news coverage today differs from what they grew up with. But unless you lived through that era, you don't know how true that is. It was, comparatively, a golden era, when you could pretty much trust what you saw and heard. That's because news was curated, gathered, shaped, and validated by professional journalists. For a long time, there was no room for bias. To be sure, it was a different time. There was no internet, no World Wide Web, no cable news, no way to instantly know what was going on at any time of the day somewhere else. And as a result, people lived their own lives, not vicarious ones. There was little fear of missing out. That's not to say people were uninformed. We had newspapers every morning and radio provided headline news hourly, papers arrived again in the afternoon, and then at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the nation sat down to watch its prime-time source of information, a 30-minute news summary of what was going on in the world, broadcast by one of the three television networks. Direct from our newsroom in New York, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and... Eric Severine in Washington, Charles Collingwood in Paris, Morley Safer in London, Dan Rather at the White House, George Herman in Inglewood, California, Bill Plant in Los Angeles, Bill Stout in Los Angeles, and Hal Walker in Washington. Good evening. Senator Robert Kennedy remains in extremely critical condition tonight, the victim of an attempted assassination. 
Doctors say it is too early to determine the damage done to his brain. By Ironically, network news didn't make money. It drew people in, but it didn't pay the bills. TV networks made their money from entertainment. News was a prestige product. Each network competed to become the most trusted source of information, to attract the most viewers. They bent over backwards to be neutral, unbiased, giving voice to every side of an issue. That was the business model. The very best at this was CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, and the man who headed up that effort was Walter Cronkite. Not a news reader, but a news editor, a journalist with print experience, who not only determined what went on the air, but how it went on the air. We must be simply reporters of what is going on to the best of our ability and truthfully, and then the people must make the decision as to what is right and what is wrong. That was recorded by Don Mitchell, one of the mentors early in my career. Don was amazing. He trained as a classical musician and eventually went into broadcasting, first as an engineer and then as an entrepreneur who owned a little radio station deep in southern Illinois. WRAJ in Anna was small in audience but big in stature, all thanks to Don. Broadcasting Magazine wrote articles about him. He served on the United Press International Board of Directors, and year after year, he secured interviews with all kinds of people of note, thanks to his remarkable powers of persuasion. What kind of people? Well, Buckminster Fuller, Ralph Nader, Peter Jennings, George Wallace, Ann Landers, Norman Vincent Peale, Nancy Reagan, heart surgeon Michael DeBakey, and Walter Cronkite are just a few of the scientists, politicians, activists, journalists, and entertainers he interviewed for his local audience. Don Mitchell was and is an inspiration. Today, at age 88, he lives in Dallas, Texas. How did the Walter Cronkite interview come about? He was going to come to Carbondale, Illinois, to interview Buckminster Fuller. And I mentioned that to Monita, my uh, longtime receptionist and bookkeeper, whom you know. And uh, Monita said, he used to go with a girl from Anna. I said, really? So uh, I made the arrangements to meet him in Carbondale, and at the appointed time, uh, I was sitting in a rental car outside of Buckminster Fuller's dome home where he was going to do his interview. And I said, Mr. Cronkite, I understand you used to go with a girl from Anna. Well, I thought everybody's forgotten about that. He <laughs> And before he left town on a chartered plane, he said, you ask about Bent Winters, that was her name. And uh, I was on my way to Anna to see Bent, and she obviously got married on me. <laughs> and, uh, he was lucky that she did because uh, she was a very beautiful but fickle girl. She was just uh, graduated from uh, high school. And... Uh, was uh, killed in an auto accident less than a year later out with another man. So uh, she was beautiful but fickle. <laughs> Career-wise, I think, wasn't he on his way to Kansas City at that point? Yes, he was. He stopped in Kansas City and got a job and met his wife there. And uh, they had a long, happy marriage. Walter Cronkite, at that time, he was uh, probably the top 
anchor, and CBS News was king of the airwaves, NBC probably a close second, ABC was always the third cousin. Uh, no doubt about it. He could have been elected president. He was so well-respected at that time. And then, since then, I think his stature has grown even more as people look back and go, gee, I wish that's the way they did the news today, where they're was very little indication of what the person's individual bias or preference might be politically. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I'm afraid our profession has gone way down. You were lucky to, uh, or I should say, you took the initiative to interview other news people, Peter Jennings, Eric Severide, Marvin Kalb, Roger Mudd, Harry Reasoner. These people also were at the peaks of their careers at that time. How would you describe those men versus maybe the way you see the news media today? Well, it was an entirely different world. That, uh, the, uh, the news media today is too concerned with celebrities. Uh, it's it's uh, they need to go back more to coverage of the truth. Period. Well, let's take a listen to the man who's credited today with doing just that. Here is Don Mitchell and his interview from 1966 with Walter Cronkite. Our guest on Insight this week is Mr. Walter Cronkite, who is featured on the cover of this week's Time magazine, a man who Time calls the single most convincing and authoritative figure in television news. Mr. Cronkite certainly stands alone in his realm, enjoying a unique position in his field. The name Walter Cronkite is synonymous for many with the term space shot coverage, special documentary series like the 20th century, and everything that's most important in general. Walter, it's wonderful to have you as our guest this week on Insight. Don, it's good to be here. Carbon day on this rather rainy morning. I believe you did the uh, CBS Evening News last night in New York, didn't you? Uh, that's right. Uh, Bud Benjamin, our executive producer of this documentary series that we're here for, and I flew out after the program last night. And I understand that you're to be on hand for the news again this evening in New York. I doubt we're going to make that. I think I'm going to have a substitute in there tonight, uh, but I'll be back on Wednesday. It's a bit unusual, to uh, say the least, for you to be on the side of the table being interviewed. You are a native Midwesterner, aren't you? I was born in St. Joe, Missouri, and brought up uh, many of my years in Kansas City, Missouri, and have uh, worked and traveled through this area very much. Actually, there are quite a few Cronkites uh, scattered around this part of the country, and a number of them in the uh, nation. The, the name and the family goes back to the original New Amsterdam colony, uh, and uh, it's an old Dutch name. You're no doubt best known to our listeners for your lead role in the CBS Evening News. And what size audience do you have for that newscast? Well, I think it runs around 15 to 20 million a night. I can't uh, quite explain my calm in the face of that many viewers, but uh, it, it, it exists. What do you find most enjoyable about your work? Well, I've always been a newsman all my life, and I, I like working with the product uh, news. I don't think there's a more important role than informing the public, trying to inform them keeping them abreast of the world in which they live, and uh, merely doing the best job of getting the most information across in the time allotted to us uh, is a challenge and a satisfaction. You're an old radio broadcaster, aren't you? I did radio off and on uh, from the very early days at the University of Texas and uh, on through until I finally uh, settled into the United Press uh, and spent 11 years there, many of them as a foreign correspondent before, I came back to the States and joined CBS in 1950. Walter, did you ever have the urge to go up yourself on one of these space shots? 
Well, I'll admit that at the very beginning of the space program, uh, I don't think they could possibly have gotten me into a, a, a rocket or a spacecraft. But now that the reliability seems to have been fairly well proved out, I have a tremendous urge to. Yes, I certainly would like to go. I saw a picture of you in the Time article in that uh, racing car. And do you do much of that? Not any longer. I raced for a good number of years and enjoyed it immensely and still think it's a marvelous sport. And... Uh, and a good one, but uh, I don't do it anymore. How long have you been with CBS now? I've been with CBS uh, 16 years. You're a family man, aren't you? Oh, yes. I've got three children, uh, two daughters, 18 and 16, and a boy, nine. What sort of handicaps do you find in your social life, considering your work and its unusual hours and demands upon your energies, things like making trips to the Midwest uh, overnight and being back in New York? I don't find many handicaps, but my would-be hosts and hostesses find it pretty impossible to... It's uh, very difficult to plan uh, ahead any any event, uh, and all social invitations are accepted on a if-and-as basis. One tonight in New York, for instance, which I may or may not make. Are you an apartment dweller, or do you live in the suburbs? We live in Manhattan, uh, uh, a few doors from uh, the uh, mayor's mansion on Gracie Square, we're known as mayor watchers in that community, uh, in a brownstone house, a four-story house that we bought about 10 years ago when, as Betsy says, we bred ourselves out of our apartment. I see. You've met, I believe, most of the leaders of the world and probably interviewed a good many of them. I wonder, are there any that you've not met and have a deep desire to meet for some reason or the other? Oh, I think that probably most of them who I have not met I would like to, uh, I would like to see. Uh, I think I'd particularly like to spend time right now in Africa. I'm intrigued with the developing nations in Africa, and I have not had the opportunity to spend much time there and spend much time with the leaders of those nations. But I think that that is a coming continent, uh, uh, still an unknown one to us, what motivates them and uh, what makes them go. And uh, these are things that I'd like to know. Would you tell us how you put together the CBS Evening News? It's a half-an-hour newscast, and I'm sure that requires many hours of work on the part of many people. Just how is it put together? Well, it's put together very much like a newspaper is put together. Uh, we have uh, three producers for the program, executive producer and two uh, assistants who are actually listed as producers, one for news content that day and one for the sort of advance pieces, the small pocket uh, instant documentaries we do. Uh, in the morning we meet, discuss the day's news, what looks like coming up, uh, where our correspondents and cameramen are, where we should disperse them to cover what we believe uh, should uh, make a part of the evening news. And then from there on out, it's a matter of uh, getting the film in, uh, viewing it, looking at film uh, at televised stories coming in from affiliate stations on the circuit, uh, choosing that which we believe is the most uh, important, and uh, writing it and putting it together. It's a, uh, a complicated process to go through detail by detail, uh, but that's the, the basic foundation of it. What time do you actually do your newscast, and how is it uh, shown in different parts of the country? Well, uh, Eastern time, we... Uh, broadcast for the first time at 6.30. And then uh, that program is repeated at half-hour intervals uh, right on up until the program is shown on the West Coast at 9.30 Eastern Time, 6.30 West Coast Time. Uh, 
if there are no developing stories, uh, no late film coming in, nothing that would change the program, that 6.30 program is repeated intact. Otherwise, we stand by and we update the program as needed. Is the program seen live in the New York area then? No, it's not, actually, unless we do a repeat. It's shown there at 7 o'clock, a half hour after it's originally done. Since you started your career in radio, uh, Mr. Cronkite, have you any thoughts on how radio as it stands today could benefit by certain changes? In other words, any ideas for the betterment of today's radio? Well, I think the principal thing to better radio, and I assume we're talking about radio news, uh, is simply expansion. I think that uh, all stations, uh, local and, uh, uh, and the networks as well, could use more correspondence, more news gathering, more original news gathering, rather than dependence upon the old news sources of Associated Press, United Press, etc. I promised my sixth grader daughter, Jane, that I'd ask you a question for her the, this morning, Walter. Uh, Jane would like to know what you do during the commercials on your CBS Evening News. Well, I suppose I ought to say I pay attention to the commercials. <laughs> but uh, honestly, we're updating the program even as we're on the air. Uh, one of the facilities that we have and have built into our evening news program is that we uh, photograph that program right in the newsroom, right where we work all day. I don't move from that chair uh, when I finish looking over the last piece of copy. I simply put on my jacket and we go on the air. Uh, this gives us the facility to continue to work right through the program. And uh, uh, we don't make a big thing of this by announcing bulletin or flash or we just had this off the hot off the wire or anything of the sort. We simply uh, update as we go along. And uh, if we have not yet gotten to an item and there's a new top on that item, some new developments, uh, writer handles it or he tells me and I ad lib into it so that we uh, are absolutely current with that program. This we do, quite honestly, during the commercials or during a film piece which I have previously seen and do not have to watch at that moment. You're certainly one of the most influential persons living today with millions of people depending on you each evening for their news of the day. Some surveys have shown that people tend to believe TV news more than other media. Does this great responsibility ever weigh heavily on your shoulders, Walter Cronkite? Well, I think it weighs heavily on all of our shoulders in this business. Uh, and that goes for the, our opposition news programs as well as our own. Uh, we are conscious of the responsibility we have. Uh, however, I think that despite the fact we have our viewers and listeners in the millions, uh, you have yours in the tens of thousands, uh, that we all in the news business understand our responsibility. There are few irresponsible news people around. Uh, this is part of the training of a good journalist. Uh, each word is weighed for its impact, uh, for its uh, honesty, for its integrity. Uh, this is true of all newsmen. You ever get calls from very important persons indignant because they didn't feel you uh, dealt properly with the day's topics? In other words, there's bound to be differences of opinion. Do, do they come to you? <laughs> Yes, they do. Uh, we have we have phone calls at the end of the uh, program, sometimes from the very highest people, uh, asking why we treated a story in a certain way. I must say that uh, that I think I can say with great honesty that this does not influence us. We'll continue with Don Mitchell's 1966 interview with Walter Cronkite in just a moment. And now back to Walter Cronkite, as interviewed by Don Mitchell in 1966. In the field of news, there are oftentimes uh, difficult decisions to make, and 
where the decisions are so far-reaching, as in the case of an entire TV network, they're no doubt doubly difficult. The Time article refers to a picture report in August of 65 showing U.S. Marines burning a Vietnamese village as the villagers wept. CBS correspondent Marley Safer related the story of how the Marines put the village to the torch, wounded three women, killed one baby, wounded one Marine, and netted four prisoners, leveling 150 homes in retaliation for a burst of gunfire, which had come from the village earlier. Now, this film footage, I'm sure, was the subject of much discussion on your part before it was aired on CBS and a good bit of controversy after it was aired. Who has the decision to make in cases, difficult ones such as this? That uh, decision is made uh, right in our shop on the evening news and our executive producer, Ernest Leiser, and our producers, Sandy Sokolow and uh, uh, Russ Bensley and I. Uh, we make them. Sometimes uh, in particularly difficult cases where we can't agree among ourselves, we uh, take the matter up with uh, higher echelon. But uh, uh, we're under no directive in any of this matter. It's an individual decision on each case. That uh, same correspondent, Marley Safer, was recently quoted in a news item that uh, we came across as saying that the Assistant Secretary of Defense, Arthur Sylvester, when he visited Saigon that same summer of 65, uh, told the correspondents there that they had a patriotic duty to disseminate only news that made the U.S. look good. A network correspondent was quoted as saying, Surely, Arthur, you don't expect the American press to be the handmaidens of government, and that Mr. Sylvester replied, Yes, that's exactly what I do expect. He also quoted Assistant Secretary of Defense Sylvester saying, look, I don't even have to talk to you people. I know how to deal with you through your editors and publishers back in the States. He then is reported, Sylvester is reported to have stuck out his tongue and made faces at the assembled correspondence in this encounter at Saigon. Now, the reason I'm going through this lengthy uh, uh, <laughs> explanation is, Walter Cronkite, since you are managing editor of the CBS Evening News, to which Mr. Safer sends his reports, you surely must have some thoughts on this story. Uh, would you care to share them with us? I have some very specific thoughts, and uh, uh, they are said in regret more than in anger. Uh, there is a certain arrogance in Washington, and not just in this administration. It's been going on for some years, uh, toward the press and the people's right to know. Uh, it is one of the dangers current in our democracy that the management of news has become a philosophy uh, in Washington and elsewhere. Uh, and it's something that all of us in the news business must combat, and I assume we carry on that fight with the full support of the people who do have the right to know. These are our public servants, after all. Arthur Sylvester does have an obligation to speak to us and to speak the truth to us, not, uh, not lies and distortions. Uh, we do not have an obligation to support the administration or its policy in any way. We have an obligation, uh, only one obligation, that's to tell the truth and all the truth. And that, uh, that's the uh, full state of the situation at the moment. Uh, I think that we are more aware today of the dangers of managed news than we have been in the past. Mr. Sylvester himself uh, is on record as having said he believes it's proper for the administration to manage the news. He said this during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I think we pretty well knocked that down, but uh, that's not going to stop the attempts. We all want to create uh, the news in our own image. I don't mean we in the news business. I mean all of us as citizens and a people. We want the world to think the best of us. Uh, there are always cases of managed news. The society page is the worst case of managed news. Who ever heard of a, of a uh, marriage announcement uh, telling uh, who the girl used to go with? Uh, uh, but uh, 
But this is no excuse, and uh, and certainly the handling of the people's business in Washington, uh, we have no obligation, as I say, I'll repeat again, to the any administration. Uh, we do not even have a, an obligation in the sense of patriotism. Uh, we must be simply reporters of what is going on to the best of our ability and truthfully, and then the people must make the decision as to what is right and what is wrong. This particular story is really rather puzzling to the layman out in the out here in the Midwest, let's say, in that uh, as far as we've seen, there have been no denials that this press conference was held, that, that uh, Mr. Sylvester was incorrectly quoted. There's been no legal action that I know of. And in other words, the story stands, and yet uh, it in itself is rather shocking, it seems. What, uh, what is a layman to make of that? Well, I think the layman has to accept it at face value, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's a shocking story, and it's shocking behavior on the part of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Information, Mr. Arthur Sylvester. It can't be denied because the correspondents were all there. It wasn't a one-man story. It's not one man's word against another man's. It's one man's word against the entire news corps, practically, in Saigon. And very recently, we noticed a story about a... Um a uh, village that uh, had been burned, and the uh, authorities in Saigon denied this and then acknowledged it the day later when news film was shown of the very event. Well, no, an interesting thing is they denied the story of the Kamenei burning. Uh, that yeah. was denied for 24 hours until the film came in. Mm -hmm. uh, they're finding it a little difficult. I think this is one of the reasons that Mr. Sylvester's antagonism has been aroused. They're finding it difficult to distort news today, thanks to the that all-seeing and... Uh, honest eye of the camera. How do you achieve your daily picture coverage of the war in color? It is all in color, isn't it? Yes, it's, uh, uh, we found that we can work in color as, about as well as we worked in black and white. We were concerned about that for a while, but uh, the technical considerations have not given us any major problems, and uh, certainly <laughs> the war is vivid, uh, almost too vivid in color. Interesting talk about color there and the use of it in covering the Vietnam War. Don, maybe we should just, let's talk about WRAJ for a minute. Well, it was a small town music and news operation. And I don't think we have many of those anymore. Anna, Illinois was not a major metropolis in the United States. Uh, our population was 4,800 souls. <laughs> <laughs> what was the power of WRAJ? 500 watts. 500 watts. AM and uh, 3 kilowatts FM. And in the scheme of things, that's a very small coverage area. Yeah, our, our population of our uh, county was about 16,000. <laughs> and, and that's about our coverage area. Amazing. And yet you're getting these world personalities, internationally known personalities. Pierre Salinger, who was JFK's press secretary, you interviewed yeah. him. How did you get and those folks? Well, you know, <laughs> in, in a simple answer, just ask. <laughs> but the follow-up to that is you've got to be ready to not waste their time, number one, because their time is very precious, and they really appreciate that. There were other folks you uh, used to bring back uh, interviews from your trips, and you'd come back and, oh, here, I had an interview with Ann Landers, or here's Norman Vincent Peale, who was one of the preeminent uh, religious thinkers at the time, uh, Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon. It was just amazing how you did that. Well, it's just amazing how easy it is to get people, if you're thoroughly prepared, uh, make a reasonable request to them, 
and and it's it's amazing how easy it is to get people to to do your uh, answers. Uh, I remember one day coming uh, down to the station in the evening, and Colonel Harlan Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken comes out the door, and you said, Bob Smith, I'd like you to meet Colonel Harlan Sanders. And- yeah, I, I remember that well. He he was in town to, to uh, give an award to the uh, couple who owned Kentucky Fried Chicken in Atta for being extra clean. <laughs> Now, you say you just have to be well-prepared, but I would imagine today it's much harder to get to these kinds of personalities. There's so many people to go through. Was it that way back then, and you just happened to navigate through their people easily? It's it's amazing how easy it is to navigate through people uh, if you know where you're going and are very well-prepared and, and uh, make reasonable requests. Okay. Let's continue now with your interview with Walter Cronkite from October 1966. We did the first portion of our interview this morning with Walter Cronkite sitting in a car outside the dome home of our Buckminster Fuller, the man who is the reason for Walter Cronkite's visit to Southern Illinois with a CBS film crew. Now, after that CBS interview has been completed at mid-afternoon, we are en route with Walter Cronkite to the airport where he will catch a charter plane to return to New York. Walter, had you met Buckminster Fuller before today? No, I had not. Uh, certainly a delightful experience. We, we filmed him for our 21st Century program, which is the successor debuting in January to our long-run 20th Century program. And, of course, is one of the outstanding futurist uh, thinkers in this area. Uh, uh, it was a little bit like coming to Mecca to come here to Carbondale and talk to him. You do expect to use this in the 21st century. You say it starts in January. Uh, will there be a program devoted to our Buckminster Fuller, or will this be an insert in uh, one of the programs? Well, it's a little hard to uh, answer that question quite yet, Don. Uh, uh, we have intention to use much of the material uh, in probably several of the programs of the 21st century, since his range of knowledge encompasses so many areas of, uh, of the future. But uh, I must say that the... the uh, material we gathered today was so fulsome that Bud Benjamin, our executive producer, I can see the wheels turning even now, (laughs) is thinking about a Buckminster Fuller program. Maybe it'll turn out to be uh, 21st Century Presents Buckminster Fuller for the whole series. Actually, you shot uh, some 20 or 30 reels of 400-foot reels of color film in there, didn't you? I think we did, yeah. How many people were involved in this particular flying trip for CBS? Uh, Ten, I'd think the answer is. I see Bud Benjamin holding up both hands, and I think he's got five fingers on both. Would you care to make any predictions at this point as to who the Republicans will nominate for president in the next presidential election? There's quite a bit of speculation arising on that now. Well, no. Uh, The election, of course, in uh, uh, next month is going to make a great deal of difference. It's going to uh, perhaps uh, place some candidates before the Republican Party. the kind of run Romney makes in Michigan, of course, will be influential. Percy's race here in Illinois will be influential. Uh, Mark Hatfield's race in Oregon. Uh, Ronald Reagan has to be considered a, a possibility, and his race in California will have a lot to say. I noticed on your CBS Evening News last evening, speaking of Ronald Reagan, that he was interviewed there by Eric Severide, and uh, Eric uh, asked him if he cared to make a pledge that he wouldn't run for president if he were elected for uh, for uh, governor in uh, California, and what did you make of the answer? 
Well, I may have the answer that Ronald Reagan has the same problem every politician has when he's asked that question. What do you say when you're running for a state office uh, as to whether you're going for the uh, Big Apple uh, or not? You obviously can't say that uh, this is, a, I'm just using this as a stepping stone, uh, although it'd be refreshing if some congressman or some uh, gubernatorial candidate said it sometime. Uh, obviously, any man in politics uh, is going to be open to a bid for the presidential nomination. And I think the fact that we correspondents keep asking the question is not that we expect to enlicit a, uh, a, uh, a straightforward answer, but to just sort of tease the candidate into seeing what kind of a answer he can come up with and uh, maybe with that hope that we'll hit that bonanza someday and they'll say, uh, I'm going for the presidency, this is just a way station. There's been a great deal of discussion about the increasing crime rate here in the U.S., the alleged degradation of morals in the country. Uh, do you feel there's cause for alarm in this matter? Well, yes, I think there's cause for alarm. Uh, I think uh, Perhaps the greatest cause for alarm is not so much that it's increasing as that we don't seem to be tackling it with very much imagination or initiative. Uh, of course, the long-range solutions in education and in uh, economic uh, betterment uh, is, uh, uh, is ob obviously fundamental. Uh, what we do about it right now is something that seems to me it should be attracting some of the more uh, interesting solutions that have been brought forward so far. According to that article in Time about you, Walter Cronkite, you consider the networks to be doing a first-rate job of news dissemination, but still depending on the two wire services, AP and UPI, for their basic news. Uh, if this is a correct quote, do you foresee a change in this situation? Do you have any suggestions on how it can be improved or overcome? Well, uh, obviously the ideal solution is to have more reporters uh, for uh, the great news organizations of the networks uh, to put out more people on the street, so to speak. But I don't really know economically how we're going to handle this problem in the future. I think that we should have more people in Washington, more people in known news generating areas but whether we can ever duplicate the wire services and have uh, a network of correspondence uh, all over the United States and the world is something else again. Walter Cronkite, if you had your druthers as regards news coverage in this country, is there something that you would like to see happen more than anything else? Uh, you mean a news event? Well, if uh, as regarding the means of news coverage, the, the development of news coverage, what would you like to see? Uh, in our own field. Yes. I'd like to see miniaturization of camera equipment uh, primarily. Uh, that and something which I think will come very shortly and that's uh, use of satellites to to reduce the cost of long-range transmission of uh, video pictures. But uh, primarily the miniaturization of film equipment which would give us uh, so much greater uh, mobility and flexibility than we have now. I think we're enjoying a good demonstration of that as far as the radio end of it right now because had it not been possible for uh, us to have a transistor tape recorder today, I don't imagine I'd have gotten a chance to have this detailed interview with you. And we're enjoying the last part of it now as we're nearing the Southern Illinois Airport and uh, your very efficient young man, Bob Pugliese, there is taking on us on a, a half-flying ride. You have a charter plane to catch here, don't you? Yes, we have. We're hoping to uh, make a connection in St. Louis, and uh, with uh, some good fortune, we'll make it. Do you think you'll make your newscast this evening? 
No, I'm not trying to do that. Uh, we're just trying to get back to take care of some other business. We got an election to prepare for in New York, which takes a great deal of time and effort. We got another space shot coming up the day after the election. And uh, we got President Johnson out winging over the Pacific, which uh, involves a great deal of coordination for us and news coverage. And I need to get back for all of those things. Well, Walter Cronkite, thank you very much. Thank you, Don. Bye. Listening to that 50-some-odd years later, that is a very impressive interview. But uh, Walter Cronkite was impressed by you, too. Well, really, uh, what impressed uh, him about the interview was that uh, I got into some rather deep questions uh, regarding uh, coverage that was happening in Vietnam at that time. It, it piqued his interest. Uh, and, and my my interest in truth in reporting. They gave me a copy of a note that he wrote that said, I met this young man from Anna, Illinois, and uh, one of the things he impressed me with was he did not ask me for a job in New York. Don is actually selling himself a little short there because Walter Cronkite actually described Don Mitchell to CBS Corporate Brass as, quote, the brightest young man to come into my focus in some time. Unquote. Don was about 35 years old at the time, and weeks later, the network called him to Chicago to offer him a job. But Don didn't want to move to Chicago, where CBS wanted to make a place for him. Well, they called me to Chicago, and I was thrilled by the, uh, uh, the recognition. And I believe it was WBBM called you up. That was the Chicago-owned and operated uh, radio station, Chicago. Yes. And but uh, I did not pursue it as aggressively as you might imagine, because Anna, Illinois, where I was living then, was an idyllic place to raise a family. My, my daughter Jane, who is now a TV anchor here in Dallas, and uh, my son uh, David, who has started four different companies. They went through the Anna Jonesboro Community High School, public high school, of course, I was always impressed by the fact that your family came first and the small community where I worked for you was, was such an idyllic place and obviously a great education because your kids went on to do great things. Don Mitchell was truly a renaissance man. He didn't need CBS to be successful. In addition to his radio work, he authored articles for Reader's Digest and Norman Vincent Peale's Guideposts magazine. He was into other businesses as well. For a time, he became one of the nation's top kitty litter manufacturers. His father-in-law owned hundreds of acres of clay soil along the Ohio River, and Don and his in-laws turned that into gold with their Absorbent Clay Products Company. On many of those business trips, Don would stop at various cities along the way and continue interviewing celebrities he arranged to meet. In the late 1970s, he sold the radio station and went into kitty litter full-time. Next, he started a consultancy that specialized in helping manufacturers develop products from factory waste. And in the 1990s, when the Iron Curtain fell, Don and his wife Miriam began exporting fine china, crystal, and other products from Russia and Eastern Europe. I learned a lot from Don Mitchell. He didn't put all his eggs in one basket. He saw life as a smorgasbord, not a single entree meal. He was content to live comfortably in a small town where, through sheer force of will, he was able to attract all kinds of famous people to speak on his radio station. Well, uh, I've, had, I've had a thrilling career. 
I really have. I had a lot of fun interviewing these wonderful, uh, well-known people. And thank you, Don, for giving us permission to listen to more of those interviews in upcoming episodes of The Off-Ramp. Don's interviews can be accessed anytime, anywhere from the Southern Illinois University Collections website. Just go to the web and search for Don Mitchell, spelled M-I-C-H-E-L, Insight Interviews. We hope you've enjoyed this look at Walter Cronkite and how the news was gathered, curated, and presented in the not-so-long-ago. This has been The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Thanks for listening. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.